The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode of Demystified was made possible in part by our top tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiton, as well as all of our other patrons and those who support the show. Thanks for your support. It means a lot. And now back to the regularly scheduled programming. The 25th of January, 1959. Ivdel, a small town in the Ural Mountains. Nine people arrive by a train preparing for an expedition. The group is comprised of students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute and are aiming to cross the northern mountains. The trek was dedicated to the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, one held suddenly so that Nikita Khrushchev could consolidate his power over the state. Perhaps this expedition has even been organized in part by the local political youth organization. But for all our talk of Soviets and institutes and communism, we must remember that these people preparing to trek were all normal people, living normal lives. It's very easy to think back to the time of the Soviet Union and imagine it all in black and white, with Shanka wearing men in long coats calling each other comrade. But underneath that projected exterior lay what lies under pretty much every place all over the world. People. The hike was also a graduation of sorts for those going. They were all grade 2 hikers, and in Soviet Russia at the time, grade 3 was the highest, and this route, a grade 3, denoted the hardest category. In winter, it was important to have checking points as well. They'd hike north through the mountains and reach a mountain known as Gora Otorten as their final checkpoint before heading back. You may know Svetlovsk by its more common modern name of Yekaterinburg, the fourth biggest city in Russia, for reference. It was, for all intents and purposes, a simple hiking trip. On the 23rd of January, they're issued with their route book by the committee. For 11 people, one extra person, 38-year-old Semyon Zolotyarov, was slated to go with another expedition, but for some reason was put on this one instead. Still, it was a similar difficulty, so I imagine he was just trying to get his box ticked. Despite his presence, though, the group number's 10, so I don't know why they were issued an 11-person route book. The others are all far younger than Zolotayov, between the ages of 21 and 24, their leader being 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, a radio engineering student. The same day they get their route book, they head off. The first part of the trek is getting to Ivdal from Svetlovsk, an easy enough route since the roads are in play at this point, but past that small town, which they reach on the 25th of January, is untamed wilderness. For those from smaller, more urbanized countries or areas, it can be easy to forget that countries are big like Russia or the USSR back then. It was enormous, full of vast spaces with very little in it, so much that we don't see or dare to fathom. They take a truck to the last stop, the hamlet of Vizdai, and rest the night with bread to eat to conserve their rations and energy for the next day. Then they begin the climb. 
That was the 27th of January. On the 28th, one of the group turns back. 21-year-old Yuri Yudin is maligned with a number of health problems and has been most of his young life, from rheumatism to a heart defect. When his knee starts to go, he knows it's not going to get any better anytime soon, and in between his own pain and a desire to not slow the group down, he turns back. Knowing now what happened then, and all of what we still don't know, I wonder how he felt about that decision. For a bright and spry young man, especially an outdoorsy type, it must have felt crushing to be beset by such pains. But perhaps the later perspective is a little different. The other nine press on. They've got a mountain to reach and goals to achieve. After all, the conquest of nature is one of the most ironically natural things in any animal. Whether it's salmon swimming thousands of miles upstream, or a herd of deer thundering across a plain, or a lone man planting a flag on a summit, nothing compares to that primal urge to best one's environment. On the 31st, they arrive in the highlands, and stock some food up in a cache for the return journey. This would lighten their loads for the ascent, and with the fresh snow on the ground, it would prove practical for keeping it fresh. At this point, they'd reached a mountain pass, at the base of a mountain whose name may bring a chill to your spine. Kolatsiakl, which when translated from the language of the Mansi people native to that region means the Mountain of the Dead. This seemed to not deter the group. After all, what's in a name? On the 1st of February they left for the pass, but their progress was slow. Snowfall was heavy and their visibility worsened. Before they knew it, they'd gone the wrong way, up towards the top of Kolatsiakl. Thus, they decided to camp for the night and continue on in the morning to make corrections for their error. The problem was, this area on the slopes of the mountain offered very little shelter from the ever-deteriorating weather. Going downslope to the sheltered woods would have meant a one-mile trek back the way they'd come. Maybe they all wanted a bit of experience with mountain slope camping, for whatever reason specifically they put down their tent. And then... Nothing. No word, no reappearance. Nothing. This wasn't totally unexpected. As we've discussed with other explorers of all stripes, a little bit of getting lost is expected, and there's usually a grace period of sorts. Dyatlov said he'd send a telegram as soon as they'd returned to the village of Vizdai to their sporting club, no later than the 12th of February. He had told Yuri Yudin, the one who turned back, however, that he expected the trek to take longer than that, so nobody's totally concerned when the telegram doesn't arrive on time. But by the 20th of February, the relatives and friends of the students were waited long enough and could wait no longer, and demanded a rescue party be sent. So, volunteer teachers and students sent out the first scouting expedition. When they turned up nothing, the local army, police and their helicopters were utilised. On the 26th, the group's tent was discovered. The sight confounded the onlookers. It had been cut open from the inside and was half toppled with snow. All the belongings of the hikers were inside the tent, as well as most of their shoes. Nine sets of footprints found, some with one shoe, some with socks, some barefoot, leading away to the edge of the woods on the opposite side of the pass, around a mile to the northeast. The track was lost after a half a mile due to the snow, however. At the edge of the forest, next to the remains of a small campfire, were the first two bodies, Grigory Krivonyshenko and Yuri Dorovshenko. Both were barefoot and wearing only their underwear, despite being surrounded by snow and in sub-zero temperatures. The branches on the nearby tree were broken, around to up to five metres, suggesting that one of them had climbed it for some reason. Three more were found between them and the camp. Igor Dyatlov, Zinaida Kolmogrova, and Rustem Slobodin. Their poses, and the fact that they were staggered 300, 480, and 600 metres from the others, suggested that they tried to return to the tent, 
again for an unknown reason. If it was the cold, why did they leave the tent in the first place? They had all died of hypothermia, but for those keeping count, we have four people unaccounted for. On the 4th of May, under four metres of snow in a nearby ravine were the other three, Yudmila Dubnina, Nikolai Thibaut-Brignol, and the older Semyon Zolityarov. Alexander Kolevdatov was also in this group, but his death was similar to the earlier ones. The other three that I just mentioned had some key differences. For one, not only were they all far better dressed than the others, but some were even wearing the clothes of their undressed former compatriots, with burn marks on them all torn up. For another, all died of severe trauma. One to the head, one to the chest, another of internal bleeding. Kolevatov had died of hypothermia, like the others. The inquest was a nightmare of puzzles, none of it made any sense. The initial inquiry was begun as soon as the search was, and to begin with it led up fine with the tragic story of a group of hikers getting lost and freezing to death. Sad, but not unusual. The last four, however, raised more questions. Of the three who didn't die of hypothermia, the coroner ruled that the force that had caused their fatal injuries was delivered with the same impact of a high-speed car collision, but in spite of this, external damage was almost non-existent, indicating that the wounds were caused by high, concentrated pressure. The four in the ravine were found in a creek and had lost much of the components of their remains. Eyes, lips, tongues missing variously from the four. As strange as that sounds, the investigators ruled it out as a lead, as any body left in a creek for months, even in the cold and under snow, will start to lose those kinds of pieces. The Mansi people, who we mentioned earlier, are a nomadic people of sorts, living more on the land than the Russians of the area, which made them easy scapegoats, but the inquest ruled that they weren't involved. In spite of the fact that in a blizzard, between 25 and even as low as minus 40 Celsius, they were mostly unclothed. Those who were clothed appeared to have taken the clothes of the dead, torn them up and worn the strips. Other than those nine, there were no other people on Kolatsyakal, apparently, that night. Their tent had been ripped open from the inside, and all the members had left the camp willingly, on foot. On one of the victims' clothing, high levels of radiation were found. But foul play was ruled out. The official ruling was a, quote, compelling natural force, and no more was said. The case was sealed in a secret vault and remained relatively undisturbed until the 90s, In 2009, the case re-entered the public domain, and in 2019, the Russian authorities said they'd consider reopening the case and had launched a little bit of a new investigation. So what happened on that fateful night in February of 1959, all the way over in Russia? What led to the deaths of those nine people and that enduring mystery that lives on to this day? The fellow leading the expedition did give his name to something, if you haven't heard of it already. Because today on Demystified, we're looking into the fact and the fiction behind the tragedy and mystery of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Today on Demystified, we return from a brief hiatus to finally look at Dyatlov Pass. It's one that one of my listeners has been requesting me for ages, so if you know who you are, I finally got around to it. Like many of the other more instantly recognisable mysteries, I was reluctant to do it at first for a while, but a return to my work after the lockdown easing has left me kind of bereft of opportunity for new ideas, so here we are. A morbid and fascinating tale for the ages. It happened almost exactly as I described it in the retelling. 
Nine hikers and skiers, originally 10, but with the one returning, who died in 2013 at the age of 75, setting out to hike a trail in the Ural Mountains. They get caught in a snowstorm on the slopes of Kolatsyakal, the mountain of death, if you can believe how ridiculously ominous that is, and somehow they all die. Six of hypothermia, three of trauma injuries. My Franklin sense is tingling. I'm seeing parallels with the Northwest Passage expedition. A group of explorers, one of whom turned back early due to illness and thus survived the fateful trip, met adverse weather conditions and died due to them, or possibly other factors. The similarities end there, except of course of the trend of ominously named things. I mean, really, the mountain of the dead has got to give Erebus and Terror a run for their money. But, in an interesting trend that we'll explore much later, that is not possibly an entirely accurate interpretation. From the Mansi Holochatl, which then becomes Kolatsyakl, one could extrapolate mountain of the dead, or more plainly, mountain which is barren, or mountain where there is no game to hunt. Dead Mountain is simply the literal translation. We'll get into the theories later, but first let's look at the facts. This group of ten, including the survivor, Yuri Yudin, were mostly university students at the Ural Polytechnic Institute. That extra man, Semyon Zolotarov, was studying for a master's certificate in ski instructing and hiking, and was added to this expedition when the other expedition he was supposed to go on went without him. I don't know why, maybe he just missed the boat on it, so to speak. Either way, it seems that he was added by the Central Committee of Physical Culture. Benefits of that sort of system, I suppose. It would probably have been a little awkward having the older man along with them, but the group seemed fairly accommodating from the diaries we have. Besides, his presence would have likely helped, as he was an experienced skier and climber. Although, here we get into that benefit element, which will make up a chunk of the third act of our show. What does one feel like when one survives something like this, or how did Zolotarov feel when he realised things were going wrong? If he'd been on his other expedition, he'd still be alive, and if Yuri Yudin hadn't turned back, he'd have died 54 years before he ended up dying. Well, the group wants to go hiking. Why? Well, I don't know. From what I can tell, they all wanted to get their level 3 hiking qualification, the hardest ones for cross-country skiing you could do in the USSR at the time. That in itself seems justified. Like doing your DV for UK-based listeners who would get that reference, everyone needs a hobby, and back in the days of the USSR, outdoorsy hobbies were heavily promoted as being good for the mind, body, and socialist spirit, so it's almost natural. There's also something to recall for later. They're all experienced hikers and skiers to some extent, with a couple of very skilled members. Keep that in mind. They plan the route as relatively straightforward there and back affair. Across the mountains north, then back across them south. The main problem we find is the weather. A snowstorm comes in, and we lose easy sight of the party. We lost proper sight of them when they left that last small village, but from their diaries and photographs we know that at some point the weather turned bad, and they were forced to make a camp on Kolatsyakl. Now, I say forced, it was a choice. Go back to the wooded areas at the base of the mountain, which would provide protection from the storm, but come at the cost of losing any altitude they'd made. Although it was out of their way, the position they found themselves in on the mountainside was advantageous for starting off the next day's trek. So the group decided, or perhaps its leader made an executive decision, to encamp on the slopes of Kolatsyakl. Days go by and we hear nothing. Not even reports from the Mansi tribespeople in the area. As far as we know, they were the only people on the mountain on the night of the 1st of February. Now, we talked earlier about the telegram that was arranged and the delays. Again, much like with the Franklin expedition, delays in responses from explorers are, unfortunately, expected, which does mean the response from the authorities is often too slow to help. Then the search teams do go out and they find the tent. It takes another two months to find the final four bodies buried under four foot of snow down a ravine in a creek. 
the inquest ruled the deaths due to compelling natural forces, which could be interpreted in basically any way you want, but we'll come back to that ruling later. For now though, what do we know about how they were found? Six of the nine died of hypothermia, and five of the nine were found between the original campsite and the makeshift campsite under a pine tree. The other four were found a small ways away at the bottom of a ravine in a creek. The three who didn't die from hypothermia died from blunt trauma. One, a wound to the head, the other two, wounds to their torsos. With the immense force of the blows, but the lack of damage to the exteriors of the victims, the deaths were ruled out as foul play, or at least as an attack by humans or animals. As the coroner stated, the force equivalent for the internal damage taken would be being hit by a car. And besides, the only footprints visible were those of the hikers, and there were no signs of a struggle. Their tent had been ripped open, from the inside. Why would anybody do that in temperatures as low as minus 40? with a snowstorm raging. At that kind of temperature, keeping warm is impossibly vital to your survival. Most of the bodies found were in various states of undress with no socks or shoes and no clothes. Those who were wearing clothes seemed to have torn them up and repurposed the clothes of their departed friends, so they did know they needed layers to keep warm. Why not use the clothes they had? Why take them off those who died already? I did see mention that some of the strips of the clothes had burn marks on them, but I saw no mention of any evidence of a fire inside the tent possible, but no means confirmed. Keyword there as well, ripped either by hand or with a knife, not calmly opened with the door, a rip. They died six to eight hours after their last meal, so if they'd eaten at, say, 8pm, I would assume earlier because of Russian winters and the tongue going down, then they'd have died between two and four in the morning, so any time after sundown, really. They had left that campsite of their own accord, travelling on foot. The decision to leave was seemingly voluntary. They hadn't ran. Analysis of the footprints revealed that the strides were more in keeping with someone calmly walking than someone fleeing. But the tent was ripped, so they were in a hurry to leave the tent, but not in much of a hurry to go somewhere once they'd left the tent. Curiouser and curiouser. And finally, high levels of radiation were found on the clothes of one of the hikers. You can bet we'll have a little look at the implications of that, but it's probably not what you're thinking. So, what are the possible theories to explain this tragedy? Well, we'll start with the obvious one, an avalanche. Explains the snow on the tent of the roof that caved in, explains why the four were found at the bottom of a ravine buried in snow with trauma wounds, happens frequently at the end of winter on snowy mountains. Very recently, as of writing this, in July of 2020, Andrei Kuryarikov, the member of the Ural District Prosecutor's Office, declared the official explanation, after a reopened investigation in 2019, to be an avalanche. This followed an investigation in 2018 by the Russian tabloid Pravda, I'll paraphrase the rundown by American skeptic Benjamin Radford here. The snow of the avalanche threatened to crush their tent, so they'd had to cut themselves out. They were poorly dressed because they'd been sleeping, and sleeping nude or nearly nude is actually the proper way to utilize a sleeping bag's capacity to insulate, as Roald Amundsen famously learned from the Inuit. They ran to the woods because the trees would help them escape the still-falling snow. They got lost. One group tries to make it back to the camp in the tree line, others try to return to the tent. Those at the bottom of the ravine have been swept there, and the strangely dressed ones have tried to salvage clothing from those that had died because their other clothes were buried under the avalanche. The common explanation, by the way, for the missing body parts of those found in the ravine is predation or scavengers, as well as just decay, rather than those wounds being inflicted intentionally, which is a rather popular speculation, but one with basically no evidence. But if this was perfect, this wouldn't be a mystery. 
Firstly, the location is wrong for an avalanche. There were no obvious signs of one having taken place, no debris or destruction in line with what you would expect. The layer of snow covering the bodies was too shallow to have been an avalanche. Secondly, if the strength of the snow had been sufficient to sweep the four into the ravine, why were the others all okay? And how did one of those in the ravine die of hypothermia when the others were all killed by shock trauma? I mentioned the end of the winter earlier, but April-May is the end of the winter in the Urals when the snow melts and avalanches are common. February is still mid-winter with the chance of one happening being very low. Furthermore, that area just isn't prone to avalanches as shown by terrain physics analysis. An analysis of the slope revealed that if there had been an avalanche, it wouldn't have hit the tent due to its position. Add to the fact that this likely would have been because Dialov and his party were experienced hikers and chose a position to pitch the tent to avoid avalanches. Finally, the footprints. The patterns showing all nine walking away from the tent seem incongruous with someone fleeing imminent danger. The calmness of their departure suggests something else. Of what, I'm not sure. That 2019 investigation revealed some interesting details which will lead into our other theories, but for now, let's look at a reconstruction of the avalanche. The night of the incident, February 1st, was exceptionally cold and windy on Kolatsyakl. Wind speeds were going up to 67 miles an hour and temperatures were as low as 40 Celsius below. With this information, which the original 1959 investigation either ignored or didn't have access to, a new timeline was constructed. The group first arrives and puts their nine-person tent up on an open slope with no natural barriers. Frosted snowfall are consistent throughout the day. The group's activity weakens the snow base that the tent is on, and during the night the weight of the new snow causes it to pile up on top of the tent, blocking the entrance. The group sees the avalanche happening and starts to evacuate in a panic, with only some being able to be dressed. They cut themselves free and make for the tree line 1,500 metres below them and relative safety. The group then splits. Those who are poorly dressed try and make a fire at the tree line but freeze to death. Those better dressed, including Dyatlov, make for the tent to gather supplies but die of exhaustion and hypothermia. The final group makes for the lower ground still, equipped with the most clothes and actual footwear to find a better camp location. But they fall through a snow hole caused by a layer of weak snow concealing a ravine and the creek and they die of their injuries. The report also included several things. Firstly, that the group and his leader were not as experienced as we mentioned earlier. They chose a dangerous place to camp and made the mistake of splitting up when they should have been collaborating on trying to keep warm. Moreover, the 1959 inquest made several mistakes in the collection, handling and interpretation of the evidence, leading to some of the other theories we'll be discussing. The next theory is that a catabatic wind caused their demise. What's a catabatic wind, you ask? It's a rare weather phenomenon where a sudden burst of wind carries high-density air downwards due to gravity. I'll basically just quote the Wikipedia article for simplicity's sake here. Quote, A catabatic wind originates from radiational cooling of air atop a plateau, mountain, glacier, or even a hill. Since the density of air is inversely proportional to temperature, the air will flow downwards, warming approximately as it descends. The temperature of the air depends on the temperature in the source region and the amount of descent. For instance, in the case of the Santa Ana, California, the wind can, but does not always, become hot by the time it reaches sea level. In Antarctica, by contrast, the wind is still intensely cold. End quote. Now, these winds are often tame, but they can move as fast as hurricanes, generating enormous downwards pressure. A 2019 Swedish-Russian investigation compared it to an incident that occurred in Sweden in 1978, where eight hikers were killed and one injured when a massive catabatic wind descended on top of them. The topography of both mountains was similar. The hikers would fear their tent being blown to pieces by the wind, but could also not leave through the door due to the pressure. 
they cut their way out and make for the tree line, better cover from the wind. They did leave a torch on their tent, which was found by the 59 investigation, to guide their way back, possibly when the wind died down. They constructed two bivouac shelters, but one collapsed, leading to the injuries and those dead. Then we've got another rather strange theory. Infrasound. Infrasound is an almost imperceptible low-frequency sound wave that can sometimes provoke anxiety and even panic attacks in humans. In his 2013 book Dead Mountain, author and film producer Donny Icar proposed that the winds on the mountain created a Karman vortex street, that is to say, a repeated swirling pattern of winds, which in turn produced an infrasound that panicked the hikers. The three that fell simply fell down the ravine in their blind panic. When the others got to the bottom of the slope, they'd have been out of the earshot of the infrasound and thus may have regained their composure and tried to return to the tent. Next, we come upon a very popular theory that the Soviet Union was involved in a shady cover-up of the incident because of military testing. The basic premise is that the Soviet Air Force accidentally tested a parachute mine overhead, where sea mine dropped from a plane, and that the hikers tried to flee that or were killed by it. Now, parachute mines were being tested by the USSR in that area at that time, and they explode in the air, generally speaking, tending to cause concussive wounds rather than explosive ones. So, most froze to death trying to wait out the bombardment, and three were killed by a bomb. But if that's the case, then why was that not stated when the secret files ended up being declassified? If it was the fault of the USSR, we'd probably know about it by now because of that. There was also a theory that it was a nuclear weapon of some kind, thus explaining the reported radiation on one of the hikers. But if that was the case, then why only one hiker and not any of the others? I have not seen a convincing explanation for the radioactivity other than it was a mistake in the recording by the 1959 investigation. Ultimately though, the fact that the incident was covered up and the files secreted away isn't necessarily indication of a conspiracy. That's just what the Soviet Union did. State secrecy was paramount for even the most minor incidents, and in the USSR, this kind of cover-up was far from unusual. By the late 1980s, all of the files had, in some form or another, been released and declassified. Now, we can't ignore the phenomenon of paradoxical undressing. When the body is close to death from hypothermia, it can, due to mental confusion and nerve damage, perceive itself as actually being very, very hot, and the person removes all of their clothes, paradoxically hastening their demise. Whilst this could have been a factor in some of the hypothermia deaths, it doesn't really explain much beyond that. Some of them appear to have tried to have dressed themselves in a haphazard way, suggesting enough mental clarity to try and add layers, so it definitely doesn't explain all of them. Going back to Donny Icar, he did a pretty good rundown of some of the other theories in a documentary he made. The initial speculation that the Mansi had attacked the group was nothing. The Mansi were not known to be violent without provocation, and no tracks or evidence suggests an attack. Same with animals. No tracks, no evidence. Plus, if the group were being attacked by animals, it would be safer to be in the tent than out of it. The idea that high winds might have blown away one person and the others tried to save them doesn't explain the cut tent, or that winds strong enough to carry a person would have also carried the tent. I'm not even going to dignify the alien's idea with a proper response. Okay, I will, but only for the sake of fairness. Some people reported seeing glowing orange lights and spheres in the sky that night. But that would be a more realistic and consistent matching of the theory of Russian military maneuvers, planes flying overhead, dropping their ordnance. And why would aliens do this? I'm aware that it's presumptuous of me to assume that an alien would share our morality or idea of what constitutes good, clean fun, but causing nine people to willingly walk to their deaths in the snow doesn't seem to serve any practical purpose. Maybe the aliens scared them and they ran. But really? Into minus 40 snowstorm weather? 
And how would the aliens have survived? And why didn't they flee rather than calmly walking away as the tracks suggest? One day I will do an episode on aliens and you can enjoy my nuanced take on the concept of life on other planets, which I believe Balance of Odds does exist. But that's not today. So, what happened to the hikers of Dyatlov Pass? Well, my money's on Avalanche, but it's not a perfect fit. For one, it doesn't totally explain the strange circumstances around the hikers, the radioactive set of clothes, the burn marks, the distribution of the bodies. It's all a little clunky. But it does explain the ripped tent, the various states of undress, and why they walked away from the camp. Perhaps they thought the avalanche was over and so they didn't run for fear of worsening it. I don't like the idea that they were attacked by someone or something. No real evidence. And in fact, the Yeti, which we have talked about before on this show recently was mentioned in conjunction with this incident. Again, no evidence. Only three of them had wounds, none inflicted by anything for definite. The missing tongue and eyes are the first parts to go when a scavenger gets involved, and if there was a dangerous man or beast stalking the mountainside, why would the hikers cut their way out of the tent to go and meet them, only to die of hypothermia? As much as it's the preferred theory of every horror writer, filmmaker, and video game dev, it makes no sense. The other smaller theories are interesting, the catabatic winds, the infrasound, the paradoxical undressing, but you could really synthesize all of these as parts of a whole. They're more like side dishes to the main entree of the avalanche theory. At the end of the day though, I just don't see a theory that stands up to scrutiny as well as that, and that's just the way it is. There was also another similar incident though that occurred in 1973, the Chivarai Pass incident, also in Russia, where a group of hikers died mysteriously. That would take its own episode to cover, and isn't nearly as mysterious as this though. But why is this such an enduring mystery, if it seems to actually be not all that mysterious with the modern evidence? Well, for starters, it's the perfect Cold War thriller. In the deep of winter in the heart of Russia, some shady stuff goes down on a mountain of death. State secrets, cover-ups, hidden files, it's all very Soviet, isn't it? I think that's why people got so attached to it. The 1959 investigation was relatively poorly done, because it was a backwards part of Russia with not that much in the way of resources. It left a lot of questions unanswered. Russian writer Anatoly Gushchim published The Price of State Secrets' Nine Lives in 1990, which purported that secret weapons tests by the USSR caused their deaths. Now, this was a pretty buncombe claim, but it led to some interesting debates and follow-ups. For instance, Lev Ivanov, who led the 1959 investigation, recounted how he had reported strange flying spheres in the sky, but was told to omit this from the official reports. I think this account does show something, though. The fascination with the idea that there is more to this incident. Humans love looking for patterns. I've talked about this before, and it's a big part of why conspiracy theories are a thing. We look for patterns and we find them, even when they're not there. Like I said before, of course the USSR covered this up. They covered up every comedian who told the joke that bombed, every watch made wrong in the clockwork factory, every little blemish that could reveal the problems inherent in their system. It's a bit like the Chernobyl incident in a way, if you've seen the HBO miniseries, they highlight this particularly. The idea that it's not so much that there's no explanation for these strange events, like the arc words, how does an RBMK reactor explode? The state knew that there was danger, but it was covered up to prevent a bad look. So this incident probably met a similar fate, covered up to ensure that a minor incident was all that was on the report card and the officials in charge could sweep up a big bonus for their productivity. 
So really, the mystery here, I think, is a product of the USSR's obsession with projecting an image of perfection. It's like that old saying, the first step to solving the problem is admitting there is one. If you refuse to acknowledge the incident, how can it be solved? So it goes unsolved. And I suppose this still is to an extent, although, as of the 2020 report, the Russian authorities considered the case closed, an avalanche being the explanation. What of their legacy? What of the hikers? Well, in 1990, the Dyatlov Foundation was established in Yekaterinburg, dedicated to preserving the story and investigating further. But Yuri Yudin, the man who turned back, died in 2013 at the age of 75. What was life like for him after that? It reminds me, as I said far earlier, of the men of the Franklin Expedition who were turned back in Greenland for their sickness, a handful of men whose lives, in that moment, must have seemed terrible. Waylaid with sickness, physical pain, and the sorrow of missing out on an adventure of a lifetime, and the chance of immortality through brave exploits. But then what happens when you're sitting on the sideline, waiting for your friends to come back, and time just goes on? Days turn to months. Months turn to years, years turn to decades and to centuries. Now, with this incident, there was some closure. By the time he died, Yuri Yudin would have drawn his own conclusions about the fates of his friends. With the Franklin expedition, that handful of men would have had to have spent their lives only guessing at the true fates of their comrades. And the survivor's guilt, to have your own body turn against you in a moment of hardship, but for that same moment to be what saves you. The fact that you came so close to almost meeting a terrible fate, but avoided it through means not of your own choosing. If it had been up to you, you may have gone to your own death. But it wasn't up to you. It's the sort of thing that makes you understand why some people believe in an all-powerful guiding force. For me, though, I don't. If the all-powerful guiding force, be it a god or anything you want to term it, saw fit that one should live, why did the others not? Why not all of them survive? So for lesson for today... Take nothing for granted, and go with your gut when the going gets tough. It's hard to know sometimes in life which path to take. The road well trod is boring, but safe. The path less travelled is less travelled for a reason. It's a gamble. We all need to take risks sometimes in life, but one must be careful as all you've earned can be lost on one turn of pitch and toss. As the late Kenny Rogers said, You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run. But with that, we close the book, for now at least, on the Dyatlov Pass incident. This episode of Demystify was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Support us on Patreon at Demystified by Ashley Styles, and find us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Sharing really helps the show grow. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.